Anyways, if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians. We've been looking. We are in this uh, month-long series called Me Church. I think there's a little graphic that you'll see there. Uh, Really looking at steps to do church God's way, the mentality that we have so many Me Church-type attitudes in us. It's about selfishness and preference, and we come into the church, the people of God, and we say, this is about us today. This is about like my church, the way I want it, the style of worship and all those things. So we've been fleshing those things out, really desiring that we would cut that M, flip it around, and look at what God says about we as a church. And so we've been unpacking that the last two weeks. Um, we're going to do that for this week and next week. We looked at first just what the church is in the book of Acts in chapter 2. So I'm kind of giving you a recap of going back and saying, This is what the people of God gathered as, devoted to the apostles' teaching, uh, devoted to the breaking of bread and prayer and fellowship, and this is what that looked like. And then last week, we specifically looked at the relationship of the membership of the body, how we relate to one another, and what does that look like relating to the leadership of the church as elders, and I'll I'll explain that in a little bit here. Uh, But mostly journeying through the book of Ephesians now, kind of looking at the first few chapters and what Paul's writing there, and we pick up today as we're going to talk about the topic of forgiveness. And I know this is, I'm going to flesh this out, but forgiveness and unforgiveness is such a dividing thing in the body of Christ and in relationships in general. I don't assume that everybody in this room is good at forgiving one another. I know I'm not always. And so we're going to kind of talk about what that looks like in terms of the scriptural command. So I'm going to read one verse at the end of chapter 4. <coughs> and uh, one verse in the beginning of chapter 5. This is one of those texts that it's good to read across your Bible's uh, chapter breaks. Uh, verse 32 of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5 kind of go together seamlessly. So we'll read those two things. It says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I want to pray for us. You pray, and uh, occasionally I'll do this. I want God to just speak to your hearts, but especially in the area of forgiveness, if there is somebody you're even thinking of, as I mentioned that word, that maybe you have not received forgiveness from or that you um, haven't forgiven Maybe you just ask God to speak to your heart in light of that relationship in this moment, and I'll pray for us collectively. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for its truth, certainly from your grace that was lavished on us, displayed by the love of Christ and his bloodshed and death at the cross. Father, that is where we as a people of God find forgiveness and that atoning sacrifice, and I pray that you would help us today as we don't often relate well to one another on this topic of forgiveness and unforgiveness. And and Father, Satan is subtle in our hearts, and then he builds up over time a desire to be an unforgiving people. And so I pray that you would help us, anybody, all of us in this room who have bitterness in our hearts, who are not as tenderhearted as we should be, help us by your grace. And we pray that Jesus would be exalted, and we pray these things in his name. And all God's people said... So as I said last week, we kind of looked at a relationship, uh, and I want to show this, this diagram of what we looked at in relationship, that the body of Christ kind of has 
this one another relationship to in that bottom plane is that we relate to one another in love and encouragement. We're supposed to, you know, build each other up in the body. And there's accountability and love and encouragement in there. And then there's a relationship of oversight and submission in the two planes of relationships with elders in the church that the elders are given to the local churches to oversee. And so there's a fair amount of submission in leadership that way, but there's also shepherd oversight. And I said last week, as, as a shepherd of this local flock, I want to know who I'm caring for. And so that kind of uh, helps understand who is committed here. And then there's a relationship for the elders in the congregation as a whole to equip and teach and recognize and build up the body of Christ. And so I wanted to just kind of bring that in as, as we look at relationship between one another in the body and then those outside of the body. And last week we said this, and I think it's important to say again, I challenged us and said that maybe God's plan is about more than your own individual holiness. Many of us come to the church, we want to grow spiritually and it's good, and we want to uh, like the certain music that we worship best with and that's okay, and yet maybe we are a little too focused on self. And I said, maybe if it's about more, perhaps by pouring your life, and this can be done in numerous ways, into other people in a committed fashion, those who are weaker in faith will be strengthened and God will be glorified. And specifically in the area of forgiveness, that if we would pray for God's grace and be a people that would humble ourselves enough to forgive others in the body of Christ and especially those outside of the body of Christ, maybe God would do a marvelous work in our soul. So, drama. People drama. That's the the little title you saw in your bulletin. I would bet that every one of you has some people drama in your life. Raise your hand if you have people drama in your life right now. Raise your hand if it's the person sitting next to you that you have people drama. (laughs) That's not, that was tricky. I would, I would, I would bet, and this is, this is super important to me as a topic because of this reason. I have seen and been a part of so many yucky, yucky, messy relationships that I'm usually in a room involved with people that there's little reconciliation, little desire, hearts are hardened, and I see it, and I, and I tell myself all the time, this is something that we need to continually put before ourselves, the church, in teaching, because it's such an area where Satan creeps in and he splits, especially this time of year, because guess what's coming? Thanksgiving and Christmas, when you get to see all your family members, where you could just raise two hands now and say, people drama. You all have siblings, maybe, and parents, and and there's a lot of issues, and I really felt like God was saying, you need to teach on this again because this is such a divisive area in the church. And when God's people do not get forgiveness, they do not look like God's church at all. And, and I'm guilty of it too. People drama. It looms all around us because the fall, and you have to go all the way back to Genesis, the fall created, sin created division in people. It created a bunch of conflict and strife and relationships are broken and fractured. Primarily, our relationship with God broken by sin, but that broke everything else. Even in deep friendships, I'm sure you can think of some friends that you have just endured life with, that there are moments of conflict and strife in those friendships, and and maybe they've endured because they're deep and good and you've loved through them, but they've had moments I can think of good friends, a good friend in college that I had, that we had moments where we were just like mean to each other and we had seasons where it was just hard. Marriages, this is a big deal. Kids that get older, being their parents, big deal. 
There's people drama all around us. You see moments of God's grace and harmony in our lives. By his grace, we get to witness those in deep friendships and love. But for the most part, it's broken. Now, the root of that is a selfish heart. And at its core, and I want to say this, and maybe it'll throw you off a little bit. At at its core, we idolize ourselves. Now, that's not really a foreign concept in terms of the Bible, but if you want to think about forgiveness and unforgiveness, at the core, you and I idolize ourselves. Why? Because we think we are an entitled, deserving people. We think we are owed. It has everything to do with forgiveness and our ability to give it and receive it because in our selfish pride, we believe that we are deserving or entitled. We are owed. This is a me-church attitude. When you have unforgiveness issues, you generally say, They owe me an apology, right? You owe me because of what you did. And so you owe me something that is generally selfish. This idea of recompense that you need to recompensate or compensate me because you've hurt me. And so in our selfishness, and I want to say that may or may not be true in your situation. That may or may not be like you're saying, well, yeah, Sometimes you are, oh, we teach our kids. I teach my kids to apologize. But as many of us know that our parents, when you say, say you're sorry, sorry. Wow, I just, that was so loving. I just felt like that just did it all to restore the relationship. But for the most part, we feel like we're owed a debt. And when that debt is not repaid, our hearts get hard. That could be towards people in the church. That could be towards leaders. That could be towards government. That could be towards your family members, your parents, whatever. And I want to just just say that attitude in us is is hard. Now, this is timely. I shared last week that Josiah went in for his uh, injection, simple procedure, and he came out with a broken leg. And I shared that last week, and our attitudes have been challenged in that, in that, like, we, I'm being honest, like we, this isn't for all of you to get upset and like call the children's hospital. We love that place. But like we, we were surprised. We like felt like, man, should the doctor have called us and just like said, I'm really sorry. And we wrestled with that attitude. We were like, my wife and I would just talk all week about like, have he, has he called yet? The reason why is because we want an apology. Like he went in there under their care and, and they broke his leg and that makes everything complex for us and they don't have to live life at our house with the complexity of Josiah now added in that. But I know what this is like. So I come here today like I know what it's like to want somebody to say like, hey, I'm sorry. Now that doesn't change anything. That's not going to fix anything in that sense. But we want people to acknowledge and so we hold on to that. And I'm telling you folks, if you hold on to that, You get bitter and more bitter and more bitter and Satan just comes in. He says, yeah, you have every reason to hold that against them. You have every reason because you're entitled to something more. What I want to propose to you this morning is that you can and should forgive without recompense. You can do that. You can forgive without anything coming back to you. To never get an apology, to never get any kind of ownership, to never get any kind of retribution, although we talk about that negatively, mostly it's it's positive. We want the reward back for our harm. People take people to court all the time, like, you're going to pay me, and I could sue the hospital if we wanted, and I'd probably win. We could do that. That's our attitude in our culture, because they broke my kid's leg. I could could go sue them, and a judge would probably award us a bunch of money. That's not going to change anything in my heart, though. 
You know what I mean? I propose that you can actually do that if we're getting the gospel the way that Paul writes here. And so in Ephesians 4.32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And then he adds this, As God forgave you, as God in Christ forgave you, as kind of like this, remember what God has done for you. That will dictate your knowledge of that, your ownership of that, your, your realization of that fleshed out in your life will determine whether you can forgive others if you really understand that. And so before we get into this text, I want to just look back. It's really helpful, actually, if you look at what Jesus said on this topic in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, typically in the church, most of us say Matthew 18. You know that that's when a brother sins against you. Here's the order of how you should deal with that. And immediately following that, Peter asks a question. See, Jesus told a parable. If you have a Bible, you can flip to Matthew 18. Most of it will be on the screen. But I just want to briefly walk through this. Immediately after this, Peter asks a question. You know it, like, how often do I forgive? Um, but the Lord used a, a, a parable to illustrate this point. Matthew 18, 21 through 22, he says this. But then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, for you math lovers out there, I always tell people this. Jesus was not saying 490. He does it one more time, 491, and you just say, death to you. I don't know you anymore. That's not what he's saying. He was saying unlimited. Because Peter asked a question like, okay, God. And here's the depth of Peter's question. Know in his humanity, but you don't understand some of my relatives. They do this stuff all the time, and I keep forgiving, and then my patience wears out. How often? And he's asking. We do that with God, don't we? God, how much more do you want me to give? How loving do you really want me to be? And Jesus' words there were unlimited. If you understand what I've done for you and what I'm going to do for you, you will be free to do this all the time, every time. Now, we don't do that in our sinfulness, but that's Jesus' point. He says it. And he says, and then he tells this parable about this king who forgives a servant a million-dollar debt. The servant went from a king, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a relatively small amount. You know the parable, I'll read it. Refused his desperate pleas of mercy, and then he throws him in prison. When the king hears about it, he called for the servant and said this in Matthew 18, 23-35. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it really fast. He says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, a lot of money, and said he could not pay. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience. So he's begging for mercy with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him. That's very violent in the Bible. Saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported their ma- to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. Listen to this. This sets up the context here. I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also, 
my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That is a warning that we often skip over in the parable. Jesus is telling this parable, and he says, here's the guy that owed a ton of money, and the king, out because he pleaded for mercy, forgave him. The same guy who was forgiving goes out with unforgiveness in his heart and does not, does not allow a, a guy with a small debt to repay. And Jesus, at the end of that parable, not saying that it's wrong, says, in the same way, God will judge that kind of attitude in you. The Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That ought to be a stopping place for all of us if we have issues of unforgiveness and say, whoa, that's a warning there from God. The point of Matthew's gospel is that if we hold fast to an unforgiving spirit, we will be handed over to the tormentors. In a sense, if this, and this is why I say always the Lord's Prayer in this condemning way, and I say it to be clear, the Lord's Prayer is a good prayer, but it's a condemning prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What are we saying there when we pray? God, forgive me as much as I forgive other people. So that's the level at what you're asking God. That's why I say it can be condemning. So if you go to God and say, God, I want your mercy, I want it to the degree of what I will give to others. So if you know you have unforgiveness towards a family member, towards somebody in this church body, towards a leader, towards anybody, you go to God and say, God, I want your mercy, but I am unwilling to give it. And I want the amount that you give me as I have given to other people. And so God, in this way, I think looks at that when we say, I'm not willing to forgive my brother. And he says, well, then that's how much I'll forgive you. That's what you're praying in that way. Harsh but true. The point there in, in that parable is that you lose heaven and gain hell. Now, that's hard to say, and I want to unpack that. The reason is not because we can earn heaven or merit heaven by forgiving others, but because holding fast to an unforgiving spirit proves, I think, that you never trusted Christ in the first place. If we trust him, we will not spurn away his life and the gift of salvation. If we trust him, we will not be able to take forgiveness from his hands for our million-dollar debt and withhold it from our $10 debtor. Think about it. So this is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4. Paul says, forgive each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. In other words, God's forgiveness is underneath our forgiveness to others. It creates and supports it. So if we don't give it to others, if we go on with an unforgiving spirit, what we show is that God is not present in our lives. The gospel is not real. When we hold an attitude like that, we're not trusting him. And not trusting us does what? It keeps us out of heaven. There's one thing in the Bible that says that what I must do to be saved, believe on him, trust in him. And I'm not saying this. I want to be clear that if you have an unforgiving spirit from moment to moment because it's hard to forgive, I know. I struggle with it just like you do. That doesn't mean that you're not a Christian all of a sudden. But if you hold on to that tighter when you know God commands to forgive as Christ forgave you, I wonder if you really trust Christ. Do you know the gospel? Do you know what's been given to you? Just like the person in the parable. The man just forgave this million-dollar debt, and you're going to hold on to your hundred-dollar debt and strangle a man because of it? But that shows our depravity. Now, you walk through uh, the context of Ephesians to get up to chapter 4 where we are. If you weren't here last week, we walked through chapters 1 through 3. 
Paul describes in chapters 1 through 3 how our salvation, what it looks like, that we've been afforded the inheritance of heaven. And then in chapter 2, he says, for grace you're saved, not because of you, but because of him. And so he unpacks all of that leading up to chapter 4 to say, you have no skin in the game. This is strictly because of my love and grace. I've forgiven you. Us in our sinful, prideful, broken, selfish, entitled rebellion, look at God and say, God, we want your mercy, but we want to do what we want. And God says, I'm going to overlook all that in Christ. I'm going to put all of that on Christ. He's going to atone for that, and I'll forgive you, even though there's nothing good in us that deserves that. And so Paul's unpacking, and then he gets to the household of God. This is what I've done in forming the people of God together under the gospel, the whole body, the we church. He picks up in verse 17 of chapter 4 that we have new lives that we're not like our old nature. So if you came in here and said, well, yeah, you don't know what I deal with. It's so hard to forgive my spouse, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my parents, my kids. You don't know what they've done. And Paul says, it doesn't really matter what they've done. You're a new creation. You're not going to operate out of the flesh anymore. Now, we still have a sin nature, but we're new. We're by the power of the Spirit. He picks up in verse 20 of, if you're in Ephesians, verse 20 of chapter 4 there. And he says it this way. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Remember, Christ taught forgiveness, Christ's forgiveness. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt, though through sin does deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's saying, yeah, when it comes to relationships, they're messy, but you're not operating out of the flesh anymore. I don't care what the reasons are that they hurt you, but you need to put on by the power of a spirit a new mind and heart and go and forgive. As he's setting up all the the commands that come in chapter 4, and then he says in verse 25, therefore, these commands. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Commands leading up to the challenge to forgive in our text. Ephesians 26, he goes on. Listen to, listen to what Paul does in, in terms of just arrive at verse 32 in chapter 5, verse 1. So we've just read that, forgive as Christ forgave you. Look what he does as he leads up to that in the commands. And, and tell me if these aren't attitudes present in unforgiving people. Be angry and do not sin. Stop there. So be angry that this happened. I was angry. Carrie was angry that they, they broke his leg in the opera. Be angry, but don't sin in your anger. Anger is not a sin. You need to know that. You can have righteous anger. You can have God created us. We read from Psalm 103 this morning. He knows our frame. We're dust. He knows we have human emotion. Anger is not a sin. You can have righteous anger and just, I'm like, we did not like this has happened. But he says, don't sin in your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So there's a limit there. And I do really believe that's a day, a physical day. Don't let that go. And we'll talk about short accounts in a second. And then he says this, give no opportunity for the devil. You know that when you get a bitter heart. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone need this idea of a Samaritan. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve, think about the parable, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Paul wrote about that in Ephesians 1. 
That when you're saved, when you trust Christ, when you're born again, the Spirit is deposited in you. You are sealed for redemption. It says there, you are sealed for the day of redemption. I need to stop there for a second. What Paul is writing there is he says, when you're saved, you're saved. You can't lose that. But there is a day coming where Christ will redeem, fully restore. Whether we go to meet him first or he comes back to this earth first, that's the day of redemption, the day of judgment that we know we're saved for. And so I don't want you to read this like, well, like the contingent on my behavior, am I saved? No, he says, you're saved. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, but there is a day coming where Christ will judge the living and the dead. Then he says this, let all bitterness, there's six attitudes present here before he gets to forgiving. Six attitudes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another in our scripture and forgive as Christ forgave you. Why the list? Because these are things that lead to unforgiveness. Look at the first one. It's a bad pathway. He talks first about falsehood. When you get wronged, when something bad happens to you relationally, someone does something to you, he puts falsehood there first because he needs you to remember the truth of the gospel, that Christ saved you when you were not worthy of forgiveness. And so that's at the center. And so what our minds do is we run towards falsehood, which is I'm owed for this debt. I need to be repaid. And Paul is writing in the gospel is writing, that's falsehood. God forgave you when you had a huge debt that you couldn't repay, and he forgave you regardless of that. And so our minds run to falsehood. And you could just think about the pathway develops. And then it goes to anger. You know what? Those stupid doctors in that hospital. Like, how could they not be more careful? And you just get angry about it. Why does this bother me so much? Because they should have known better. They deal with kids like that all the time. They deal with fragile kids. They should have known better. And it bothers you. And the more you think about it falsely, the more it bothers you. And the more it angers you. And the more that you want recompense. And then he says, and then you start with corrupting talk. Because guess what you do usually when you've been wronged? Who do you start talking to? Everyone else. We do it. It's a list. You can see it develop here. We start talking to everybody else. Do you know what they did? Oh, that's so bad. Why did they do that? I don't like them either. I like you better than them, so I don't like them. It's like an equation, right? That's, that's what it leads to. It leads to gossip, and Satan's crept in. And then it says that once this pattern develops in our forgiving, or rather unforgiving heart, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Grieves the Holy Spirit. It makes God sad that this is our attitude. Because I have given you Christ, and, and given you everything that you did not deserve. And this is your attitude. That's why I wanted to start with the parable. Like you're going to go out and choke the man when you've just been given grace. That's your attitude that grieves the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, Paul says, here's what comes into your heart. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Most of us read the Bible when we get to lists like this and we say, I, like, I can't identify. I'm a pretty good person. I don't have malice. I just watch those like in the Seven Deadly Sins on a movie. That's like, I've seen murderers on death. They have malice in their heart. And this is the list Paul says. And it's subtle because most of us just go, I don't know if I would say I'm wrathful or angry or have clamor or I intentionally slander others or have malice in my heart. And then God, 
Guys, this is like, this is the subtlety of Satan. When you develop an unforgiving spirit and you go down that pathway of falsehood, anger, start gossiping about it, grieving the Holy Spirit, you become bitter. And in some ways, we don't even know it. And we become bitter at people, and then we start slandering people. And then we start developing anger towards people. And it fleshes itself out in so many different ways. I've met people, I've counseled people, that they are angry about a lot of surface-level stuff, but they're not actually angry about that. They're angry about a bunch of other stuff that's deep buried within their hearts that they just have not scratched the surface of yet. And they have not invited the gospel into those areas. This leads to an unforgiving spirit. Armitage Robinson said it this way. Listen to this. I think it's a really good definition. An embittered and resentful spirit which refuses to be reconciled. That's how he describes an unforgiving spirit. An embittered and resentful spirit which refuses to be reconciled. Have you met people or are you someone like that? You just refuse to be reconciled and you will justify it to the death because you'll say, if I challenge you and I'm in your circle of friends or if I'm your pastor and I say, you really need to forgive or if I'm your friend and I say, you really should forgive, you'd say, you don't know what he's done. You don't know what she's done. You don't know what they've done. I refuse to reconcile with them. And I'm telling you, that will just create bitterness in your heart. And if you've met a bitter person and you're not one, although at some level all of us are in some ways, but if you've met a bitter person, you know what a joy sucker that is in their life. It's a refusal to be reconciled, and that's what so many struggled with. So struggle with. So then I just asked this question: what is forgiveness? Let's put a definition on it. And then let me perhaps answer that question by asking a question. It comes from Thomas Watson about 300 years ago. He's commenting on the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he asks this question, when do we forgive others? What's the litmus test for when we have forgiven others? And he says this, when we strive all against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. That's when you've arrived, he says. This is a very biblical definition because at each point he says something. I think there's a scripture that goes along with this. The first one, he says, when you have truly forgiven, you resist thoughts of revenge, retribution, recompense. Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So when you're in a place where you say, God, I know this happened to me, I don't like it, they hurt me, you're going to deal with them. Now, I want to not like falsely apply, you know, the passage about heaping hot coals on your enemy's head. I know a lot of people that do that on purpose. Like, just be nice to them. It's like heaping hot coals. And so people with malice in their heart go and be nice to them because they want their head to melt. You see that? Christians are super clever that way. Well, God, I'll take your word and wrongly apply it. I'll just go bring them cookies because I hope their head falls off of their neck. That's a wrong attitude. He's saying, resist thoughts of revenge. Let God deal with the outcomes. When you understand what God has done for you, you let him deal with it. God, I can trust you. This is all about faith. I can trust you for the outcome. Yes, they hurt me. Yes, it was wrong. But I don't need to be repaid. I'll trust you. The second one is don't seek to do them mischief. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. Now that sounds harsh. We would never really do that. I think we do it in our hearts all the time. We wish people like demise in their life. When they've hurt us, I hope you suffer. 
That's what we say. Most of us are just, we won't admit that we're like that, but that's what we say. And an attitude of forgiveness says that we don't seek them harm. The third thing, we wish well to them. Luke 26, 28, bless those who curse you. Man, that's tough in the scriptures, isn't it? What? Bless those who curse you. Those who hurt you the worst, bless them. We talk about being countercultural all the time. That's pretty countercultural. Bless them. Give them gifts. Bless their life. Not cookies for melting heads, but seriously blessing them. That is not easy and that is not natural to us. The fourth thing he says, grieve at their calamities. Proverbs 24, 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Be honest for a second. When somebody hurts you and they struggle through life, do you feel happy or sad about that? I mean, be honest. When somebody who has hurt you that you have a relationship fracture with and and you are unwilling to forgive them when they go through struggle, do you look out and say, yeah, that's right, that's happening to you because look how mean you are. That's generally our attitude, and that's a heart check of forgiveness. His definition in at least Proverbs 24, 17 says, don't rejoice when your enemy fails or falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. That should be a litmus test there. And then he says this in Matthew 5, 44. <coughs> pray for them. How often do you pray for people that have hurt you? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Another command from Scripture. He says a litmus test. How often do you pray for people that you desperately want forgiveness from, that owe you? And then he says this, and this is a tough one applied, and we'll talk about this in. Seek reconciliation with them, Romans 12, 18. And I went over this months ago when we went through Romans. If possible, because it's not always possible. Sometimes there's an impasse in relationships, but it's basically my translation, but it's not going to be because of you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In other words, if you can go and restore, even when you're not the one who hurt, if you can go and do that and reconcile, you need to do that. If it's on you, as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. You cannot be the reason there is unforgiving and unforgiveness in the Spirit. You don't want to be the reason. That parable, God's Word, is saying, you don't want this to be on you. Yes, they did wrong to you. They harmed you. You're going to hold it against them. You go towards them. Maybe they don't want to come towards you, but you be the one as far as it depends on you. And many of us just think, well, I can't do anything. I can just tell you that's a lie. I say it to myself all the time. Well, I don't have anything left to do. (coughs) Paul says, no. I think if you ask God, you can step towards that. And then he says this, seven, be always willing to come to their relief. Oh, you're killing me. Really? So read through this list, Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemies, now many of us have these in life, so this is totally applicable. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey, donkey wandering away, you all have them, right? You shall surely return it to them. There's a lot of context for animals there. But if you see somebody, something wandering away, most of us want to go, yeah, like, yeah, I saw their car roll down the hill, <laughs> hit a tree line, smash the whole thing up. I probably could have just put it in park, but it was kind of cool to watch. That's the attitude. And he's saying, no, be willing to come to their relief when they need you the most. Come to their relief. When these people who have wronged you, who do not deserve your grace and mercy, right? Because that's our attitude. Even though we've been afforded all, you're supposed to come to their aid. 
That's what God is telling us here in his word. So here's the forgiveness litmus test. If you've truly forgiven, and I, want, I know, I know from the beginning of starting talking about this, that you had knowledge of people in your life, in your heart, that you just know, like, I don't know if I've forgiven them. Here's a litmus test. Are you resisting revenge? Are you not returning evil for evil? Are you wishing them well? Are you grieving at their calamities? Are you praying for their welfare? Are you seeking reconciliation as it depends on you? And are you coming to their aid when they're hurting and in distress? Only then can you get to Ephesians 4.32 when Paul commands to say, be kind. To one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The command to be kind, a command to forgive. And then he adds that word, be tender-hearted. Why is that word in there? Paul reminds us, that's where your heart has to be in order for this to happen. You cannot go begrudgingly, walk through the list with a hard heart. Paul says, tender-hearted. Is your heart softened by the Spirit of God? Does your heart understand the gospel, what has been afforded to you? Then and only then can you go and be kind to one another. There are moments in our house, as I'm sure there's every house, moments, brief moments of anger and frustration with family members. And it is those moments that our heart is not soft. And then there's other moments when our heart is in a good place and somebody in the house does something really annoying towards you and you're just like, that's fine. And that's what Christ is aiming at at our hearts. Like, are you in a place of tender heartedness in your walk where other people can affect you? We have these conversations with our kids all the time. You cannot let your attitudes and action be determined by people around you. We teach our kids that all the time. You cannot react based on circumstance and people. If you do that, you're going to be the bitter, most bitter, angry person on the planet because people will hurt you. Is your heart tender and soft? And this ability stems from gospel awareness of what Christ has done. Let me ask you this, and I'm closing up shop here. Do you know, do you really, truly know what Christ has done for you? Do you really know what he did on the cross for your life? Have you really met an awareness of your own sin and shame before God? Do you really understand what he has done by his love? If you did, I believe if we concentrated on that more, we would be willing to forgive more readily. Let me just read this, what God has done. It'll be on the screen here, Ephesians 2, 4. We read this last week. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that was our lot, right? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us. This is what he demonstrated for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then this, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've been given Jesus to walk with, to see his grace. God has done that for us. Which is why then Paul writes in the next verse in chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God. Do what he has done as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God 
as beloved children. Do what God has done for you in terms of other people. Here's where, again, it pays to read through the chapter break. He says these four things in these two verses. Imitate God. Do what he's done. Psalm 103, we read for in a call to worship. He forgives our transgressions as far as east is from the west. He doesn't repay us according to what we do. That's what it said in Psalm 103 as we read it. And then he says, be like children. Now, what's the thing about children? They forget pretty quickly when you leave them in the store and leave without them, right? Like some of them are scarred and in counseling, but for the most part, they forget relatively quickly when we wrong them as parents. And that's why Paul writes, be like children. Like have a faith like a child in those moments. Forget and forgive quickly. And then he says, walk in love. Let the gospel and unity be your aim. And then he says, sacrifice. You know what? And this is the hard one, folks. We tell our kids this all the time, and I'll tell you too, because you're kind of like my kids. In the spiritual sense. Some of you act like children. No. He says, life is not fair. And you know, when we sacrifice, we sacrifice in, in, in terms that we don't think we should have to do that because it's not fair or right. And I always say, life is not fair. You're going to have to give more than you get. And this is true in forgiveness. You will have to give more than you get. And that's what it will take to forgive. If you imitate God, if you be like children, walk in love, and if you sacrifice, even when your heart, your logic, your mind is saying, yeah, but like they owe me, sacrifice. Because of Jesus, it will be possible So here's what I would just close with. What do you do? Some of you are sitting here and you say, I have unforgiveness. What do I do? Here's my seven things that I would just leave you with. First one is you need to repent and seek the Lord. Very first thing. And when I say repent, I also assume this. If you need, if you're the one that needs to be forgiven, some of us hold on to that. Like we don't think we've wronged somebody. That's usually the conflict, the falsehood. You need to repent of that attitude, and you need to repent of an unforgiving spirit and seek God. That's the first thing. The second thing is you need to go to that person. Be the one that steps into the reconciliation process. I know that's going to be hard. I know that it's been 20 years. I know that's been 30 years. I know that they don't deserve it, but be the one who steps toward, lead, be a leader in that. Number three, don't dismiss it, and this is a big one, and think it will go away with time. We do that all the time you know what? It happened 20 years ago. I think I'm over it. When you say that, you're not over it, by the way. I think, like, it's good. I'm, don't think it'll just go away. It doesn't go away. It just gets worse. Number four, keep short accounts. Do it with your, your, your kids, your family members. Do it with your church body. Keep short accounts. I was just, just hit with this. As many of you know in town, Joni Wethel used to be a part of our church family. She has a connection. Her mom died two weeks ago, three weeks ago, unexpectedly. They never got to say goodbye. She had a stroke in the hospital. She's just gone. And I was just remembering that process that as, as her, Joni's dad, Laura's husband, John, had said that, I just, man, you never know, do you? Like, why do we hold on to things when in a moment somebody could be gone? You don't want to carry that with you. People that wished I would have told her this or wished I would have forgiven her for this. Keep short accounts Don't let the sun go down on your anger. The fifth thing, be humble through the process. You won't want to. That's why we read from Philippians 2. You don't want to be humble. I get it. I don't want to humble myself a lot either, but that's what it's called for. Six, be thankful for God's grace and give it out. 
if you really understand what God has done for you, you will give it out. And the, the last one is a super important one. Remember, God's people in the scriptures are told to remember all the time. Remember and celebrate the gospel. That's why we worship. If you didn't know, we come together on a Sunday morning to just worship and say thank you, God, for what you've done in Christ. That's why the church of God gathers each and every week. That's why we gather around the Lord's table to remember what God has done by his grace and mercy. You're going to have people drama, but let us not be part of the mess. Lead in it and through it, be the example. Hold Jesus high. I want to pray for us. And I just, I'm, Michael and Levi are going to come and they're just going to, and here's what I want to do to, to close our time together. We'll sing our last song. But I just want you to just pray and reflect. The Packers are on a bye week. You have nowhere to go. The Brewers are out. Just reflect on what God is doing in your heart and saying, God, I know the person that you want me to forgive and I know how hard this is going to be. And just ask for his help. Or if it's you, then say, God, I know I need forgiveness. I desperately need forgiveness. And just see what God does in your heart. Let's pray. Like I tell my kids when they need to apologize, I can't tell you that you need to go across the room or call somebody today or invite an old friend for coffee, call your parents, call your son or daughter. I can't tell you to do that. Your heart has to be wanting to do that. But what if, what if you led in that? And that's the type of people that you were before God. And we humbled ourselves and said, you know what? As far as it depends on me, I'm going to take that step to reconciliation. What if we took the me church attitude and flipped it to, you know what? Life is too short to keep these kind of accounts. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for any conversation, and maybe that's what needs to happen. Maybe you need to pick up the phone today and call somebody you haven't talked to forever. Maybe you need to get together with somebody that you just cannot, like, fathom how you could ever be restored, but by God's grace, you could be. Let me pray for us. I want to leave you guys with this. This is what it says in Colossians 3 as we leave here. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Leave this place and do that. Have a blessed day and go in peace. You are sent.